Good morning, everybody. I'm Charlie Fink. It's August 13th, and it's This Week in XR with myself and Ted Chilowitz. And today we have an amazing guest with us, Matthew Ball. Uh, for those of you who have been living under a rock lately, uh, Matthew wrote in January what I would consider to be the Metaverse Manifesto. And what's more, he's put his, mouth where, his money where his mouth is and started an ETF, a fund of Metaverse-related stocks, which anybody can buy uh, and sell um, uh, on the New York Stock Exchange. So uh, Matthew has a long resume, including being a, a strategist at Amazon um, and uh, is a venture capitalist in his own right. Matthew, welcome and thanks for jumping in with us this morning. My pleasure, I'm excited to be here. Matthew, we are thrilled to have you. I've been a fan and a, a, an avid, rabid reader of your essays and column online, which you can point people to. Um, and many of your theses and concepts uh, align very tightly with what Charlie and I talk about and a lot of my colleagues talk about around theme park entertainment, uh, around the general understanding of where game engines are going and their power, and of course the topic du jour, uh, the metaverse, and as you, those of you that are watching video and maybe hearing a little bit of the noise behind me uh, probably know that I am in the real verse today up in Yosemite. Uh, Charlie is in his metaverse in his house. And Matthew, you had a little metaverse drama this morning, which is why we only hear you and don't see your picture, right? Yeah, it's, it's funny. I actually find it somewhat inspiring to talk about the extent to which the metaverse we hope for and that certain individuals are building, such as the folks at Epic Games, is constrained by and then varyingly unlocked by things entirely out of their control. For example, network infrastructure is critical. And as a good right. example, I'm about one and a half miles from the downtown of Toronto today, as I've just come out of holiday, but I'm in a old neighborhood that's primarily running on copper and we're bandwidth constrained. And today I was kicked off of it, which of course is not a constant issue, but we talk about so much of the metaverse being dependent on incredibly thick broadband, reliable broadband, low latency broadband, even in North America, in the second largest city where I am today, that's not universal. It's far from wide ranging. When you go to the Middle East, less than one quarter of all broadband homes can actually participate in fast twitch video games. We're not even talking about ultra low latency ones. And so we see these constraints every day. Right, so we're in the very early stages, even though we might feel like we're at a very mature stage of this, there are still uh, fly, flies in the ointment as there were, and you're, you're experiencing one right now, um, which is interesting because you live your life needing this constant sort of, well, you know. I mean, the metaverse, the, the metaverse like AR and everything we talk about uh, on this show uh, is dependent on convergence, which by the way, was the title of my second book available on Amazon, uh, Convergence really refers to this idea that we're taking artificial intelligence, ultra high bandwidth, 5G, uh, and um, other technologies like computer vision and merging them into single devices. And right. I, I would say what's more, uh, and they're codependent, right? So you, you can't really have one without the other. And of course, uh, we don't know what the role of AR is going to be in the metaverse or what the digital twin of the real world is going to, how that's going to relate to the, you know, totally untethered world of quote unquote, the metaverse, which is really just this next step of, you know, it's the spatial web. Um, you know, it's the ability to navigate through a 3D world 
uh, instead of a 2D world, uh, which is the way we interact with our devices and content today. What I think is interesting, of course, we, we know the history of, of what's been going on the past six months. Your manifesto came out. I think that um, ignited some uh, good conversation among Cognoscenti, but, uh, you know, and then Tim Sweeney raises for Epic a billion dollars, uh, which he says specifically is for the metaverse. Um, and then along comes Mark Zuckerberg to throw gasoline on the fire and uh, ignited the entire uh, market. So that now I'm getting press releases from companies that do visual effects telling me that they're metaverse builders. So you know, that's why yeah. I wrote my column last night. It's like, oh my God, people, this is getting, you know, it's, it's that old joke from, um, you know, from Anchorman. That escalated quickly. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I've been uh, emailing a little bit with Neil Stevenson and, you know, instead of a little that comment a few weeks ago saying, well, it looks like your terminology has uh, <laughs> a little, little rocket at firing off. And we sort of had a little chuckle back and forth and he, you know, kind of takes this very broad view of it. But here's, here's my question, Matthew, I'm, and I'm curious your perspective on this. Um, I like to look at things from a historical perspective. I tend to look backwards to project forward. And I yeah. actually think that this is much ado about nothing and everything, meaning that there's so much of what we're talking about today, which has already been built many, many times whenever you bring technology to a world around it. You know, when we had the first phone lines, when we had the first cinemas, when we had the first uh, television over broadcast and then cable and then the internet. Um, do you feel like we're, we're just re-evolving and re-sort of trying to reinvent something that has already been uh, in our existence in many, many ways. And the most recent is the last, let's call it 35 years of the public internet and the way people metaverse themselves together in a two-dimensional world, but we're just taking the next step. It's not necessarily anything massively new, or do you have a different thesis on that? No, I, I concur exactly, which is to say that we can simultaneously identify that there have been changes that make feel like something is very different. And we can get into those in a little bit, but at the same time, we are just maturing every underlying trend, innovation, behavioral shift, business model shift of the past 40 years. And you could drag back a little bit farther. The way that I like to frame it for folks is that if we believe that this is a successor state to the mobile internet, let's ask the question, when did the mobile internet emerge? Some people could start with mobile phones, but it wasn't until 2G networks in the mid to late 90s emerged that we had digital wireless networks. Right. Then we had the emergence of WAP browsers, which allowed us to actually access a primitive version of the web from most of our mobile phones. Then it was the emergence of devices specifically oriented towards that. You can think of that as the Palm and the Blackberry. Mm -hmm. For many people, it's the rise of the iPhone in 2007, but it's really the iPhone 3G or the second iPhone which brought three e capabilities through which the internet was usable, app stores through which we had more use for the mobile web, and the developer economy. And yet even then it's clear that saying that the mobile internet era began in 2008 is fallacious. And so I think of the metaverse as the same way. We can start with the internet, we can start with the personal computer, we can start with the rise of game engines or Fortnite and Roblox, but it really is just a progressive shift. I look at four primary changes that explain why we're talking about the metaverse now rather than 
five years ago. And that is that we've seen the virtual economy of goods, emotes and skins has gone from about 5 billion in 2015 to 55 billion last year. We've seen a shift from mobile games being low concurrent users. So 12 or eight people playing Call of Duty or Mario Kart to hundreds of millions of people participating in battle royales of 100, 150 users per day. We're getting to social mega events. The rise of cryptocurrencies and NFTs shows the legitimization of very valuable goods that only exist in intangible virtual space. And then lastly, we have the positive benefits of COVID in that it has destigmatized virtual existence. There was a time in which it was considered antisocial and certainly not looked or certainly not aspirational to come home and spend hours a day on your computer in virtual worlds. Now we no longer look down towards that. We don't look down on those who build virtual fantastical spaces. And so that to me reflects this catalysm of or catalyst of change that explains why we're talking about it now, not five years ago, even though it's building incrementally on everything for years. Um, you know, one thing that I have reflected on recently is, you know, way, way back in the primordial days of the early 90s, when we were, um, those of us who were online were working off of bulletin board technologies, um, rather, yeah. rather than an internet as we talk about it. And we called that cyberspace. And of course, the World Wide Web came along and we stopped calling it cyberspace and everybody was calling it the World Wide Web uh, for reasons still unclear to me. Uh, I guess it referred <laughs> to a more graphical internet. So it supplanted the term cyberspace. And now we're saying metaverse. And are we gonna feel yeah. about metaverse in 10 years the way we now feel about the World Wide Web? And the World Wide Web is something your grandmother says that is cringeworthy. <laughs> but it's yeah. actually more appropriate, right? The terminology, we talked about this on a previous episode, World Wide Web, the interconnected devices and how we constantly live within them now. Like, you know, I'm thinking because this week I'm on vacation and largely off the grid except for this morning and driving around in my Tesla in what I was now terming in my head a metaverse mobile because whenever I had service, the car would come to life with all kinds of features. <laughs> and then when my metaverse went away, it was just a normal car again, right? And, and it's a very interesting perspective that technology is so layered within us these days, right? That we, we, when we even try to get away from it, we can't or don't necessarily want to because it's so functional um, and valuable to us, right? So, and, and I think people are building on that value chain. And when someone like Mark Zuckerberg announces that his company is now a metaverse company, when the company I work for, Viacom CBS, I'm talking very broadly about the fact that we are investigating where this goes, because as the innovator in cable television 35, 40 years ago, we logically would be one of the innovators in the next form of how you, you know, restructure media. And I know, Matthew, you write a lot about that kind of stuff as it relates to entertainment. Yeah, it's, it's one of the most interesting elements of talking about any successor state to the internet or any gradual change is that it eventually affects almost every element of the economy. It typically starts with consumer media or to the extent in which it doesn't, for the average person, it reflects the greatest change, right? Obviously, enterprise and industrial transformation through the internet began in the 1990s, but most people experienced it through AOL, through Yahoo, 
MySpace and Facebook. Over time, it forces every media company, most of which powers our leisure to change. And so for me, it, it's personally inspiring as a lover of story, of entertainment, of watching people change how their stories are told, try to figure out this new medium. Matthew, do we think that, the, uh, I mean, there's, there's one thing I, I did want to discuss, which is the, the difference between the metaverse and a metaverse, right? Because the metaverse is going to be made up of uh, lots of other yeah. metaverses, right? I mean, there's been a metaverse around that meets every uh, condition that you set forth uh, in your brilliant essay, uh, which is Second Life. Second Life has an economy. Yeah. Second Life is vast. Second Life has ways to buy and sell things, virtual real estate, goods and services are sold in Second Life. Now, it was wildly popular in the aughts. It was the first expression of that. Uh, but the thing about Second Life, uh, I, I think, was that um, there are a lot of interesting things to learn from Second Life. Um, you know, it is a, a, you know, become sort of a niche community uh, in the world of gaming. Uh, first of all, it's a game without an object, which, you know, in the aughts, mm -hmm. people were like, what? How can you have a game without an object, right? There were no yeah. other open sandboxes. So, so they really paved the way, even though their relevance today isn't quite what you have with a Fortnite, which has 350 million users, right? You could take every metaverse, every Oculus thing that uh, Facebook has done, and it's a fraction of where Fortnite is. Uh, there was a terrific Ariana Grande concert, uh, like Marshmallow and um, Travis Scott, uh, massive audience, right? If the audience had paid 10 cents a piece, if microtransactions were possible, uh, which of course we would need in the metaverse, uh, you know, she would have made, you know, $13 million uh, in 10 minutes. Yeah. So uh, it seems to me that Epic does have a tremendous edge. I think the other thing that o puts Oculus at a disadvantage is their focus on VR. The thing that I love most about it, the thing that gives Zuckerberg the most authority is actually one of the least relevant parts. And I, I personally don't think you're gonna have much of a metaverse if it's tied to one specific device. Instead, it has to be tied to, I think, a browser so that anybody can aspect it, uh, can can access it. Uh, you know, we see Rec Room. Rec Room was kind of doing okay uh, as a VR hub. And the minute they opened it up to um, console games and uh, particularly iPhone, uh, their audience exploded, it like tripled. And, and it, they skyrocketed in, in valuation. So clearly a lot of this metaverse value is, is related to scale. Um, the other thing that Epic has, which I think puts them at an advantage is that they have this game engine. Now, what's the relationship of game engines to the metaverse? Now here it gets really interesting, right? Because you're talking now about the underlying infrastructure of the places that are made. Uh, and so, you know, they launched the metahumans, the ability to make, for anybody to make a fairly realistic virtual human. And, you know, I think avatars are going to have extraordinary value in the metaverse, right? That's the one thing we're going to take with us when we go from place to place to place. We may not uh, be wearing the same skin, so to speak, but we will always have our individual identity in the same way that you do when you log on. But the problem with, with Fortnite, of course, and, and the metaverse in general is that it isn't an open system, right? These are apps 
that you have to download that are completely controlled by one company. So I guess my question to you is app or open? It's a good question. I think there are a few critical ways or an underpinning framework. And I'll start by using a small example and then we'll move up into the framework. If you believe that the metaverse is inextricably foundationally tied to or limited by XR, AR, VR, spatial computing, then by definition, you kind of have to believe that it's not going to be a successor state to the mobile internet, that it's not going to have that wide range and impact. The internet is on every device. It powers things we don't touch directly. It powers some things that we do touch, but not on an interface level, such as a television or a car or a fridge. Uh, JR at Unity believes that there are going to be 300 million XR devices in operation, or sorry, VR, AR headsets by 2030. Let's assume he undershot and it's going to be 450, a big gap. Well, there's five and a half billion smartphones in use every day. There's a billion and a half person. I, I lost your, you and Matthew. We might have had a little. Oh, you're back. back. You're back. Matthew, are you there? Metaverse moment here. Let's see. He, he may have to call back in. Super interesting conversation, of course. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll actually take, I'll see if I can project into him because here's okay. what I've been thinking about as you guys were talking. And then when he hops back in, um, I think a lot about credentialing, right? And I think a lot about how, and it looks like he's coming back in so he can add into this conversation because he was beginning to talk about this. And you were. Yeah, he was on a roll there. In terms of the walled garden dynamics, right? So in today's world of the metaverse, current metaverse that we're using with our mobile devices and our laptops and everything else, it no, you notice that many of the companies still ask for the old school credentialing dynamic of please give us a valid email address or a mobile phone, right? So they're using the predecessor to bring you into their walled garden, right? And the question for the Facebooks of the world and then their offshoots, the Instagrams and the WhatsApps and the WeChat as the competitor to Instagram and et cetera, et cetera, and the TikTok and everything else is how high do they raise their walled garden, right? Where do they stop? Where do they allow you to credential in easier? Would we in the metaverse, a few years extrapolated into the future, instead of put your email address in, lock your avatar to our walled garden and you can move your avatar from walled garden to walled garden. I personally don't think that the companies will allow a completely open metaverse because it is against their needs of profitability and their stock, their stockholders, uh, you know, sort of benefit, shareholder benefit. Matthew, are you back with us? See if he's back. He's on mute and let's see if he's coming in. Unmute. Oh, this is such a drag. 20 minutes of Matthew is not enough. <laughs> He's trying to connect. But I think, I mean, Charlie, I, you know, there's some poor bastard listening to our show who's like, wait, they haven't even said what the metaverse is. Yeah, exactly. It's like, well, but, we but you know, it's a little bit like chasing your tail, right? Nobody knows what the metaverse really is. We well, see all but, these component parts that have to coalesce. Yes and no. Nobody knows and everybody knows innately what the metaverse is because it's how we socialize in the real world. We go to concerts, we go to movies, we go, we watch TV together, we watch TV in small family groups. All we're doing is just evolving the visual tools. Oh, he might be back here. And 
the visual tools because of the game engine technology and the visual effects technology and the way that we use these massive data pipes is getting more advanced. So we're able to do things that we couldn't do before, but we're actually just doing the same things, right? Like when you talk about Ariana Grande, well, yeah, we didn't go to the concert in person. We signed into the metaverse, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, again, you know, when technology succeeds, it takes what we're already doing and makes it better, right? There's an obvious value proposition. And I think that's one of the challenges that, that VR has, right? We right. talked about, I mean, it can't be, the metaverse can't be tied to a device. Correct. Um, Looks like Matthew's back. Yeah, Matthew, that's where you were when you got yeah. cut off. <laughs> so you heard us pontificating. Now you can add into it. Yes, it, it, it seems to be a Zoom side issue. You just couldn't hear me. Look, I mean, the basic premise is when you take a look at the number of devices that are going to be in use, the number of people who are going to be connected to metaverse style experiences, anything that is tied to an XR device is fundamentally going to limit its reach and thus also its impact. In addition, you take a look at the world today to the extent in which we talk about it as a proto-metaverse. You know, Fortnite has 500 million users in its network. Roblox has 50 million DAUs, 205 million MAUs. We have 60 billion in crypto and NFT asset transactions being processed every day. None of this required XR. I think of it as an extension, an application device. It may enrich the experience. It may lead to people engaging for longer, but I'm fundamentally or would fundamentally reject the premise that we can have a metaverse if it is only XR. And I would argue that to the extent in which we rely only upon it or primarily on it, it will constrain the metaverse beyond that. When we talk about openness, I have a similar perspective. We can think about devices and their focal point as being constraining the metaverse. And we can also think about closedness or the siloed gates between horizontal experiences as similarly constraining it. I do believe that we're going to end up in an outcome in which many platforms are mostly closed and those that are other are open are not fully open. But I'm nevertheless optimistic that in this next state, we will have a more permissive open version of the internet than we have today. Because I believe as we've learned over centuries or millennia as a society, that we don't have true free trade, we don't have true free mobility of labor, but the openness of the global economy has been advantageous for almost all participants within it. And I think in time, companies like Roblox and Facebook and others are going to believe that there's a middle ground that benefits all. Yeah, I think we are wholeheartedly in agreement on all those fronts. The and you know, we were talking about credentialing and at some point, will it get to a stage where you don't have to enter your archaic email address so that they can feed you spam and re sort of connect you constantly, right? Does that evolve? Um, it's an interesting touch point to think about because everybody wants your old fashioned email address to sign into their version of their walled garden. It's fascinating to me. Getting, getting back to some a statistic you mentioned a second ago, Matthew, Riccatello of Unity said that there would be 400 million uh, headsets by 2030? He said 300 million AR and VR. My point is- even Oh, well, of we course, if you include AR, that's like every mobile phone. So uh, he, he every meant, smartphone. No, he, he meant headsets uh, in the terms of glasses or dedicated non-transparent. What, what, what do you think of that prediction and that scale? <laughs> is, is it possible that he's right? I can't see how it's possible, but that's me possible he's right. I mean, we're talking about an extraordinarily large number of 
$200 to $400 Apple Watches that have been deployed. I think we would need a pretty significant unlock in hardware. But I think, look, I subscribe to Bill Gates' perspective, which is we're optimistic or overly optimistic on a two to three year time horizon and way too skeptical on a five year time horizon. The extent to which we're speculating as to this nature of devices nine years from now, I think it's a fool's errand to really Mm. guess what the constraints are. But I think ultimately, there's an easy way to put this into perspective. And that's why I talk about XR as if a requirement is a constraint on the metaverse, which is there's about 300 consoles in the world. Consoles are a niche business as compute devices. If we I'm sorry, you are, said 300, you mean 300 million, yes? Yes, 300 million. Consoles are a niche business. We have more Roblox and Fortnite users than we have you know, deduplicated, than we have deduplicated consoles. And so I think ultimately, if XR does achieve what sounds to be like an aggressive outcome, they will be niche devices for computing. Yeah, I think that's, that's why most of my work, and I know Charlie's work, is always informed by a 10-year horizon, not a two-year horizon or a three-year horizon, because we're looking further out through these economic dynamic changes, right? Through how devices morph and change. And when you talk about gaming, we now know, because we have the statistics, how much bigger mobile gaming is than console, right? Uh, But we didn't know that 10 years ago because we weren't able to sort of predict that dynamic. Um, So that next predictive of what XR, and we don't really even know what XR devices are gonna feel like and look like and what technological horizons we're going to see. Apple hasn't really entered the market at all yet. Right. That's a a big known unknown. Correct. Totally. Matthew, um, the the fund Brown Hill Ball, uh, which which uh, I love trades as meta. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, You guys are are, uh, pretty much of an open kimono situation. You have to disclose, I guess, quarterly what you're investing in. So so interesting. We actually do not need to disclose the entirety of our holdings. It is instead a decision. It's a decision in the spirit of the metaverse, which is to say open. It's a desire to receive feedback, to receive scrutiny, also to allow those who disagree with parts of our methodology, but not all of it, to say, well, I'm going to construct my own portfolio. Our premise has been to identify and map the universe of the metaverse in seven categories, hardware, compute, networking, payment rails, virtual platforms, and our methodology maps to that framework and then scores and evaluates and weights companies in accordance with it. And most of that methodology is public as well. That's important to us. And we evaluate that methodology on a quarterly basis, but on a day-to-day and minute-to-minute basis, you can see exactly what's in there and how much. So what's in there? It it showed me very clearly how aligned we are because Every single one, at least your top 10 investments, I have an equity investment stake in every What, what are the top 10? So right now, I believe NVIDIA is the most highly weighted company. We also have Tencent, Unity, Roblox, many of the big tech companies, Microsoft, Amazon, Google, Facebook is in there, Snapchat's in there, Sony. We get a little bit smaller, taking a look at more specialized companies like TSMC, large company, but more narrow in what it's participating in versus a Facebook or a Unity. And then even companies like Immersion, which holds the leading and most important patents for haptics. When you buy an iPhone, when you buy a PlayStation, 
you, they are getting a royalty for the mm. actual responsive sensitivity of any vibration relative to your device's response. Wow. Um, that's a, a pretty interesting inside, inside um, pick. Good to know about. That's one of the reasons I invested in your fund was I wanted to make sure I was following all of your trades. <laughs> I, I will. It's important to highlight there are a number of different types of ETFs. Ours is thematic, but it is passive and it is not returns optimized, which is to say there are ETFs where someone buys based on their personal conviction and evaluation. So I might say, wow, I think Unity is the most important company in the world, and I think it is undervalued, and so I'm going to buy a ton of it. That is not what we do. Instead, what we do is we believe that we have a good framework that tracks the emergence and economic value of the metaverse. We believe that having that methodology with a stable, diversified basket will if the metaverse is valuable and our methodology sufficiently accurate, produce well-proportional returns. We all wish we could go to 1995, go buy a bunch of Apple, but some people <laughs> bought Nokia and some people bought Samsung. And no matter how well-performing Apple was, if you had a decent methodology for the mobile internet, an index for the internet, an index for the social internet, you would have underperformed Apple to date, but you would have done extraordinarily well. And so we are trying to remove the subjectivity, the timing risk, and instead say, we have a robust methodology for a decade long process that will, or should, I should say, produce trillions in value and disruption, and therefore should track here. Gotcha. Yeah, that's generally my, my thesis as well. I, I read a really interesting article. It might've actually been in Forbes, Charlie, a few weeks back where they talked about investment advisors across these different sectors. And their thesis was that investment advisors are extraordinarily good at buying equities that are forward propel because they put a lot of energy in it. They're extraordinarily bad at selling them. They hold them too long. And the outliers are the ones that, you know, the apples of the world that just keep rising and rising and rising. It's a very rare event. Most investment advisors should learn to cut their like cut their gains as it were not even cut their losses and it was an interesting thesis i'm curious what you think about that matthew yeah i mean it's, it's really interesting i look i believe in thematic investing because i believe that while you can try to time the market and you can have a competitive advantage in your area of expertise we would say that all of us on this call are hopefully better than average on media and on tech that if you have the right conviction and you're broadly right and you have the patience and diversification to not try in time, not try to game, not try to be greedy, and you have reasonable expectations that you'll do well. There's this great quote that Warren Buffett uses, which is everyone knows how to get rich and it's patience and time. The challenge is when people don't want to get rich over time, they do not want to retire wealthy, they say, I want to retire at 27 worth hundreds of millions of dollars. We take the same perspective underpinned by a general optimism as to the US economy, as to tech and as to progress in the metaverse. Yeah, I, I largely take that same thesis across crypto, right? I have a, I, I believe that it's a long-term trajectory that will have value for my kids and my grandkids maybe. Um, and I've obviously seen meteoric rise, but I don't play it as a meteoric rise. I see it as a value area. 
uh, a, a change area, just like we see the metaverse as an area of change and growth. Well, I know Matthew has to jump on another call, as do I, but I wanted to thank you, Matthew, for coming on the show this morning. It's been great talking to you. Um, I'm a, I've learned so much from you, so thank you. Um, and, uh, you know, your leadership, at least to me, has been very inspiring. So uh, hopefully we'll get to do more work together. We'll have you back on the show, and uh, we will all watch together how this story unfolds. And I, am I look forward to it. Behind. All right. Have a great weekend, everybody. I appreciate that. Cheers, everyone. Bye. Bye. Thank you.